Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. This week, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer is completing the series, A Life That Pleases God. In this series, we have been looking at what faith is. The author of Hebrews defines faith this way. Now, faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. In this journey, we have come to see it is impossible to please God without faith. Hebrews 11 gives us the physical picture of what faith is and how those individuals walked by faith in all circumstances. Faith produces the stamina for endurance in all things. Today we close out in Hebrews chapter 12. If you're in the Ashton or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. Here is Heath with today's message, Breaking Through the Wall. We are completing our series this morning on a life of faith. Well, we began many months ago where we defined faith as the assurance of things hoped for and the conviction of things not seen. And then God, not allowing us just to look at the definition of what faith is, showed us, no, really, you may not fully understand what it looks like to live a life of faith. It doesn't just mean I put my faith in Jesus one time to make sure I don't go to hell and then I live the rest of my life just however I please, that it is a good faith commitment to daily walk by faith, knowing that only by faith is it possible to please God. If you want to live a life knowing that your life is pleasing to God, you need to know you're living by faith. And then Bible shows us examples, human examples of what that looked like. By faith, Noah. By faith, Abraham. By faith, Moses. And so we saw these examples that Hebrews 12.1 called witnesses, a martus, those who testify on the behalf. It's worth it to live a life of faith. And so as we move on, though, God isn't going to allow us just to immortalize these godly men and women who have gone before us, you know, trading their stories like baseball cards, you know, look at this, look what Moses did, look what Noah did, as if, you know, like with baseball, you trade the baseball cards, but you know you're not going to play Major League Baseball most of you. Uh, Faith is not that thing. It's not that we look at the lives of Moses and Noah and think, you know, yeah, that was them, but this is me and this is now. Instead, we see twice in this passage where it said, let us also, let us run the race with endurance that is set before us. That God shows us these examples saying, hey, listen, these are normal, average, everyday humans like you and I, and they lived by faith, and their lives pleased God. Here's what aspect of their life pleased God in efforts that God wants us to enter into that race ourselves. And he tells us to run with endurance. Shows us that the Christian life is not a sprint. It doesn't just mean you run hard for God for a little bit, and then you coast the rest of your life. That we are called to run with endurance. The Christian life is a marathon. You find a good pace of life, and we remain persistent and consistent in our walk with God. Now, I've talked with a lot of marathon people. A few of you, anybody run a marathon before? A few of you? Yeah, I see a few hands. Uh, those are the crazy people in this church, all right? Most of them don't have toenails anymore either, from what I hear. Uh, when you run a marathon, there's, just a, there's a lot of training and things that go into it, and you have to really be careful about how you fuel up for this marathon because every marathon runner, just had a conversation this last week about marathons, they at around the, from what I hear, and it's really bizarre because they always talk about the same mile marker, somewhere around the 18th mile marker, they all hit what is called the wall. 
And I wondered, you know, why do they call it hitting the wall? Because they, they tell me, because it's like hitting a wall. <laughs> All of a sudden, your legs feel like jelly, and like they feel like they're a thousand pounds, and you're just, you're moving forward just based on sheer willpower. It feels like you ran into something, and your body, uh, what is happening there is your body is completely depleted of all of its resources. You have nothing humanly left to give. Your body is cannibalizing itself just to push you on to the end of that race. Like I said, these are crazy people. And so they do this and they push past that wall and somehow they find the energy to do that. In the conversation I just had this last week, I said, how do you do that? And I was told by, by him and many other runners that you have to make yourself these small attainable goals. I'm gonna make it this next mile. And it's the littlest things that you're looking forward to. Boy, I sure can't wait to run another two miles so I can have a drink of water. You know, but this is what moves them on. And they, they break through that wall and they continue to remain up under that weight and that exertion until they finish and complete their race. And that is what Hebrews 12 is calling us to do. He said, let us also, let us run the race with endurance. And he says with endurance because you and I are gonna wanna quit sometimes. The Christian race isn't easy, otherwise everybody would be running it. We hit our walls too, and what the Bible wants to remind us here in Hebrews 12 too is that Jesus hit that wall first. He tells us in, in the second part of verse one, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the founder and the perfecter of our faith. And so the Bible calls every one of us to run. It's a word that means to exert effort. Anybody ever run a race where you didn't have to exert great effort? If you were, that wasn't the great run, that was the great walk, okay? If you're not exerting effort in your Christian life, is it safe to say that you're not running for Jesus? If your Christian life is not costing you something, it's not at times exhausting you, it's not pushing you, you're not remaining up under, it doesn't take endurance simply to walk. It takes endurance to run and to run consistently. And so God has called us to run. We saw all those examples of faith in Hebrews 11, but now the Bible says that God has a race that he has set out for us. There's something that God wants us to do. He has laid out for us to follow. And we have to do it with endurance. But in doing so, how do we endure that race? It's by looking at Jesus. Yeah, he gave us a lot of good faithful examples from Hebrews 11, that's great. They're men and women who did certain things at certain times that pleased God. But who is Revelation 1.5, the faithful witness? Also the word martus, one who testifies, it's Jesus Christ. He is the faithful witness. He is the one who says, it's worth it to live this life of faith. I know it because I have run that race ahead of you and I'm telling you, just follow me. Now, looking unto Jesus is a phrase that isn't fully captured by the English language. We just say, look at something. A lot of times it's just like, oh, hey, what is that? You know, but looking unto Jesus, this particular Greek word means it actually has an implied command to look away from everything else and at this thing. Right now, you're looking around, you know, you're, you're looking here and there, you're trying to see, you're trying to take in everything. And he's saying, don't try to take in everything. Don't look all around at the world around you. Focus your attention on Christ who has already run that race for you. Because if we're looking all around us, is this world a little bit scary at times? I mean, do you ever read the news or watch the news? It's a little bit of a frightening world that God has placed us into. 
You know, it reminds me when I was a little kid, there was always this great 4th of July parade that Clear Lake, Iowa would do. And at the end of the parade, we always knew how this parade was going to end. There was this, a whole bunch of these horses that would come by. And they come by at the end of the parade for a reason. Ask your mom. Uh, the horses, they're coming by the end of the parade. But as a child, I didn't, I didn't grow up around horses, even though I grew up on a farm. And I just, I remember asking my dad, why do these horses all have patches on their eyes? You've seen that? Why do all these horses have patches on their eyes? And my dad says, those aren't patches, those are called blinders. Or they have other words for them too, but they're blinders. It's, meant, it's, in, it's deliberately intended to prevent the horse from seeing everything around him. Because a horse, if he takes in everything that's around him, he's got eyes on both sides of his head. I mean, this, this brother can see all kinds of things going on. And God made horses terrific runners. And in a fight or flight situation, more often than not, the horse is going to take to the hills. And he's going to bolt and he's going to run, which is fine if you're a wild horse. But if you have a rider on you... Or if you're a horse that's hitched to a wagon, you know, he's going to bolt and just tear off into the country with that wagon behind him like every other episode on Little House on the Prairie, you know? And that horse is taken off and he's bolting. And the reason he's doing that is because he's terrified. And so what they'll do is they'll put these blinders on him. It restricts his vision to the goal that is before him. He's not supposed to take in everything around him. There's things around him that he doesn't need to worry about. Let your rider who's got the reins worry about those things. You keep your eyes focused on the goal. And that's the idea being communicated in Hebrews chapter 12 here that there's a lot of scary things happening around us in the world today, isn't there? I mean, look at the news. You know, we have people panicking about the election, not the one we just had, but the one that's coming up, as if the, the, the rise and fall of the United States depends on the person that we put in the Oval Office. You know, we have people who are panicking about the economy and where we're headed and the U.S. dollar, you know, versus the Chinese yuan. And, you know, what about our, our economy moving into the future and inflation? We have people stressing and panicking about the war that's going on in Israel with the Palestinians, you know, wondering what's that going to mean for them? What's that going to mean for us? Is this a sign of the end times? Is the world coming to a close? And we have Christians who are, they're, they're taking in all the sights around them. And like a horse, we're, we're going into fight, flight mode and we're, we're panicking. And so the idea in Hebrews 12 is you're going to live a scary life of faith at times. There's a lot of bad things happening around you. Don't worry about that. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus and let the one who is holding the reins of your life, let him take care of it. Let God be sovereign. We don't have to be in control of our life. You see, the natural response when we run across scary things, when bad things happen to us, uh, the natural response of our flesh, the unredeemed part of us, is to run away from God. You know, when bad, scary things happen, our flesh is like, oh, you need to take control of your life and right now. You need to be the one in charge. Uh, you need to take care of this. You need to be active. You need to do something about this. And then a lot of times what happens is we see it over and over again. Been in church, been in ministry for 20 some years now. and We see it all the time. Certain people, they get into a difficult spot and they, they bolt like a horse. They get cancer and you don't see them in church again. What happened to them? Oh, well, they got cancer as if like that explains it. That's the natural response of the flesh, right? To run and to flee when things get scary. When the, the, the Satan, the, the lion roars, First Peter describes he's a roaring lion seeking those who may devour. He's trying to scare you with things and separate you from the flock. You fell right into his hands. But what is the natural inclination of the spirit? It's in difficult trials we draw near to God. 
It's what Jesus did right before the cross. We see him going in Gethsemane to God. And so when your life gets scary and you've peeled the blinders away and you've looked around you and you see that the world is a frightening place and bad things are happening to you, your first response should be like James, draw near to God and let him draw near unto you. Why are you bolting from God? Why are you, why are you getting into a flighty panic mode? This is why often Christians, you wanna see how close you are to the Lord, watch yourself under trial. Is your natural inclination to quit church, to stop Bible reading, to stop prayer, to stop giving, to pull out of your community group, to pull out of your D group, to stop doing what you normally do in your service for the Lord? That is a flight response of our flesh. Or when you go into a difficult time, are you like Christ in Gethsemane, drawing near to the Lord and sweating drops, teardrops of blood? You're, you've got that much pressure that has been put on your life, and yet you're going to the Father to spend extended amounts of time with him. You're not letting the scary things of the world draw you away from the Lord. And so often trial is a revelation to us as to our spiritual maturity. We don't need to take in and understand. We don't need to know everything. We don't need to see everything. We don't need to control everything. In fact, I would argue that if you feel like you need to know everything and see everything and control everything, you're an anxious person. You're a fearful person, even an angry person. Because those three responses are the responses of a person who feels like they're the sovereign in their life. Everything depends on me. I've got to control it. We're looking at everything but Jesus so that we can maintain control, make sure I can keep my life where I want it to be, You'll, it'll just result in anxiety, fear, and anger. You think about anxiety, looking at the scary things of life instead of focusing on God, we've seen that happen before and it didn't end well for them either. Think about Saul. You have Goliath and he's shouting all kinds of curses against the God of Israel and all his people. And where is Saul? He's in his tent, isn't he? Now remember Saul, the Bible says, was head and shoulders above everybody else. The next tallest guy in the land, his head came up to the shoulder of Saul. This is a big fella. And he is trembling in his tent. And the Bible reveals to us why. 1 Samuel 17, 11 says, when Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. Saul is trembling in his tent because he's focusing on the enemy. He's focusing on the scary thing that's around him. Why was David bold and stood up in front of Goliath? Is because David believed in himself? No, David's focus was always on God. Today, God will deliver you into my hands. His focus was always on what God can do and that God was in control. Saul was just kind of looking at himself and his own strength and realized, I'm nothing compared to this, this beast over here. You look at Peter, we, we respect Peter. He's the one who got out of the boat, got onto the water, right? And he's doing good and he's standing in the water. He's fellowshipping the Jesus. His eyes are fixed firmly on Jesus. When did Peter start to sink? Bible reveals to us in Matthew 14, 30, when he saw the wind, he was afraid and beginning to sink, cried out, Lord, save me. It's when he was focusing on all the scary stuff that's around him. Peter wasn't meant to see everything that's around him. He was meant to keep his eyes on Jesus, but he didn't. And he panicked and his life began to crumble. Friends, that's a, for a lot of us, that's the same way, isn't it? Our eyes are doing really good. Our focus is really good if we can keep our eyes on Jesus. But when we start looking at all the scary things of the world, we're trying to control all those things in our world, we live lives of anxiety, fear, and anger. What do we do with those things? 1 Peter 5, 7 reminds us that we are to be casting our anxieties on him. The Bible acknowledges you're gonna have anxious things happen in your life. There's gonna be moments where you're gonna get anxious, you're gonna get scared. It happens to all of us. We see it with David all the time in the Psalms. He gets anxious and nervous and scared, and then he begins to say, to, to calm his heart. He quiets his heart before the Lord. Why are you downcast, O my soul? Put your hope in God. 
You know, peace is a fruit of the Spirit. It's an evidence that you're walking with God. It's an evidence that you have cast your cares upon the Lord. That word cast is a word that means to roll off. Like you're carrying this big heavy sack of grain and you got this mule over here and he can handle it better than you. And you roll that burden off onto the donkey. I'm going to leave that burden where it belongs, something that can handle this load. I can't handle it. The Bible reminds us, friends, that there's nothing in our life that we're meant to just simply handle on our own, that God is going to put us in situations that are going to be beyond us, and he wants us to take the anxiety that results from that and to leave it, to roll it on him. And what that looks like is this. I don't have to know everything, I don't have to see everything, and I don't have to control everything. What God calls me to do is to live a life of obedience and trust him with the outcome. When we can do that, friends, you're going to be the most peaceful person that you know. You're going to be the kind of person, though, even though you're suffering, you're going to have a very thankful thanksgiving. Because thankfulness has nothing to do with the state of your, your circumstances. Thankfulness has everything to do with the state of your heart. Because there's never a thanksgiving where everything went right. I mean, do go back and read the pilgrims. Did everything go right there? I mean, they lost half of their people in that first winter. And yet they paused to reflect on God and what God has done. Well, it says here, how do we, what does it look like to look unto Jesus? What is that? What do we benefit from in that? He says, we look unto Jesus who is the founder and protector, uh, or founder and perfecter of our faith. Our faith, or the faith, sometimes as it's translated, is Bible shorthand for the Christian life. We are living out lives of faith. And the Bible says that Jesus was the, you know, sometimes it'll say the author and finisher, the founder and perfecter. The, the, the concept is the same here. As Jesus takes the Christian life, he is first, he wants to tell us that he is the founder. It's a Greek word that begins with the word arche, meaning first, okay? Jesus is the first to do it. Arche, uh, Zacchaeus was an archetalonus. He was a chief tax collector, the first, the chief, the head. Uh, when we see arche, uh, Michael is an archangel. He's the first, the chief. We use the word archetype, which means the first of its kind, and everything that comes after it is compared back to the first. Jesus is the archetypical Christian, if you will. He came and lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, and then he calls to us to walk in his steps. Jesus, how can, how can we move forward in faith and following and remaining faithful, remaining under, up under this burden of the Christian life? It's by looking to Jesus who already ran it for us. Jesus' final words on the cross, what were they? It's finished. He finished it. Because he is also the perfecter of our faith. Perfecter means someone who finished something. They were the ones who, uh, perfect means complete, and so it's somebody who has completed it. So the Bible here in Hebrews is describing Jesus. He is the one who is the first, okay? He ran this life, and he finished and completed that life. And looking at him, we can see what this Christian life is supposed to be all about. Jesus said it's finished. Paul, at the end of his life in 2 Timothy 4, said, I have finished the race I have kept the faith. I have lived out this, this Christian life and I have kept it according to as God wanted me to live. And so now Jesus, who is the author and finisher, the, 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 the one who began it, the one who perfected it and completed it, is calling us into a race that he, a course that he has set before us. And so imagine Jesus, he lays out the course of the race, he gets into the race itself, runs it to show us how it's supposed to be run, and then calls us to follow in his steps. It gives us great comfort to know that things are scary around us, but if I follow in the steps of Jesus, it's going to be okay. It's like when I, I've told you before, it's like when I was a little kid growing up in Iowa, we get big old snow drifts. 
there, not as much here, uh, but in Iowa, there were drifts, and it would be too big for me to step into the snow. I would, I'd just fall all over myself. But there'd be times my dad would call me out to follow him, and what he would do is he would plunge his big feet into those snow drifts, and he would walk with short enough steps that he knew that I could walk in the steps that he had left behind in this big, heavy snow drift. And so there's a great Iowa blizzard going around me. You can barely see anything. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know. I, in my own strength, can't get there. But as long as I put my feet into the holes that my daddy left behind me in the snow, I know I'm going the right direction. I know it's going to be okay, because my dad went there first, and he's okay. This is what Hebrews has in mind here. Your life is gonna get scary as a Christian. If it doesn't ever get scary for you, you're probably not living it rightly. There's gonna be people that hate you, people that dislike you, people that scorn you. Keep putting your feet into the footprints left behind by Jesus and it's gonna be okay. First Peter 2.21 says, for to this you have been called. Are you called into ministry? Yes, maybe not full time. We need our teachers, our mechanics, our doctors and lawyers. But he says, for to this you've been called because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his steps. Put your feet where Jesus put them. Live the life he lived. Live the way Jesus lived. Love the way Jesus loved. Do the ministry that Jesus did. Remember when he left earth in Matthew 28, he talks about the Great Commission. He says, you need to teach them, baptizing them, teaching them to observe or obey all that I've commanded you. Jesus came here as an example for us to follow. We know we're on the right path when we're doing what he did and even when we're suffering in the way that he suffered. Let's look at number two, how Jesus made it through the wall. Verse two describes Jesus' focus as he was running this path that God gave him. It says, Jesus, for who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus endured. It's that word we studied before, hupo meno, hupo meaning under, meno meaning to remain, that he remains up under this burden. In other words, everything in his, if his humanness is calling him out to quit, to stop, to don't do this anymore, and yet he remains up under that burden because there's a, there's a call too great, there's a responsibility too great for him. And so he remained faithful in his race, even enduring, the Bible says, it says the cross, says he endured the cross and despising the shame. He endured the cross. Now, I'm afraid when I use the term the cross to a whole bunch of Christians, you've been coming here all your life, the cross sometimes can be kind of white noise for the Christian, sadly. We think of the word cross and you think of some polished piece of wood on the front of a church. You think of it like a piece of jewelry. You know, that's a cross. Uh, we've got to remember that the cross was a, a vile symbol back then. It would be like somebody wearing a, a hangman's noose around their neck today, you know, or somebody wearing a, an electric chair around their, their neck. You know, it's, it was a horrific instrument of torture and death. It was the worst death that you could possibly live. You only crucified people as an example to others, a fate so gruesome, the Roman government is warning you, don't you go down this path. In fact, quite often their crucifixion would begin with a severe beating, many of which did not survive that beating. They would use something called the cat of nine tails. And I've got a, a bit of a picture here for you. Uh, it, it shows somewhat of what this would have looked like. So it's this, it's not just a simple whipping. So I don't just want to picture uh, just somebody like you watching some like Alex Haley's roots of somebody getting beaten. That's bad. This was worse. 
because it had all of these strips that were along with it. And on these little strips of, of leather and things, they would tie into these cords, uh, sometimes like little metal balls to give it weight and heft when it hits you so that when it struck you, it would bruise you. And then in addition to that, giving it this weight and heft, there would be often tied in these little shards of bone or you know, metal, even glass, and it would be in there. So when these metal balls would strike your back on the forward swing, it would bruise you and it would land all of these things like claws and sink it into your flesh. And that wasn't the worst part. On the back swing, when they would pull all these cords together, it would rip off chunks of flesh like a predator's claw. And it would just, and so Jesus endured this, he, this horrific beating, such that it was just tearing away his flesh, exposing bone and organs and things. It was just a, it was a horrific beating that Jesus endured, <clears throat> such that in the prophecy, of Isaiah 52, 14, it said, many were astonished at you. His appearance was so marred, it was beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So abandon every idea you had of what Jesus looked like on the cross. Even the horrific rated R version of the passion of the Christ, forget that image. Humans can't put on screen what Jesus looked like because it would be illegal. The crucifixion was so bad, it would be illegal in the U.S. today, considered cruel and unusual. You can't show what Jesus really looked like. The Bible says that Jesus was so beaten that the people were astonished. It's a term that you would use arriving on a, a battle scene, and you just see the carnage of human blood and destruction of property that you're just in shocked horror at what took place. The Bible says Jesus was such that when people saw that, they were in shocked horror of the condition of his body. It would be something like the uh, Israel Defense Force walking in behind some of these attacks at Hamas and coming across rooms with 40 or so beheaded children. We see pictures like that and it is, we are in shocked horror. How could anybody do this to another person? This is the kind of feeling that people saw when they saw Jesus' beaten body. He didn't just have a few scrapes on him. The Bible says specifically that his appearance was marred beyond human semblance. Marred is a word that means disfigured or distorted. Something is out of place. It doesn't look right. It doesn't look normal. And so when people saw him, they're like, this isn't what a human looks like. In fact, specifically, it says that his form was beyond human semblance, beyond the children of mankind. In other words, Jesus was so beaten and so destroyed by this beating, he didn't look human anymore. He was a mass of bleeding, broken flesh bones and organs. He just, it was a hideous display. And after this, then they crucified him. Oh yeah, Jesus, after this, takes that cross beam that he carried down the Via Dolorosa, the place of suffering, to Golgotha, the place of the skull. And there, he allowed them, mind you, Jesus was in control of the situation. He allowed them to place a nail, these spikes in his feet so he can push up from it to breathe. He allowed them to put a spike between the radius and the ulna of his, of his wrists and to pierce him to this crossbeam and to scorn him and to mock him. They allowed him to, to hang on this cross and this beaten, bruised, and bloody Jesus is hung up to open scorn and shame 
as the stinging winds and the hot baking sun of the afternoon sun would beat down upon this beaten body and the, the sandy biting winds would be cutting into his flesh that had just been recently opened. And he did it for a long time. The Bible tells us that Jesus was crucified at the third hour, calculated from 6 a.m. was 9 a.m. And he hung there until the ninth hour, which would have been 3 p.m., six hours Jesus endured the cross for you and I. All the while, he says things like, I thirst. He's experiencing what you and I would because he was both fully God and fully human. And just to breathe, it was a labored breathing. You would have to push up against those swollen, infected feet against the nail just to push up so you could take a deep breath and come back down. So every breath of Jesus was labored. He's suffering and struggling, and he did it for six hours. Why? because of you and I. He did it for you and I. That's the punishment you and I deserved before God. And yet Jesus took this beating, he took it all upon himself to be our perfect sacrifice. Now, if the cross represented Jesus' willingness to endure physical suffering, the, the, this term here, despised the shame, refers to his emotional suffering. This wasn't just a physical beating Jesus was taking. Remember, the entire nation had turned against him. You and I, we don't like it when one person is angry with us on Facebook. You know, we hate the idea that one person is cross with us. Imagine an entire nation hating you so much they're shouting, crucify him. You are, you are open to public ridicule and display. Jesus endured shame. Remember when he was on the cross, we put towels across him because who dares paint the king of glory with no clothing? But he was naked on that cross, open to shame. And while he is in the most, it, this most horrible position, he was defeated, appearing to be defeated and broken and beaten. Everybody is cursing him and mocking him. The soldiers, they put, they put this robe on him. They put his crown of thorns. They strike him with a reed and say, prophesy who hit you. That's pretty insulting. The people who are killing you aren't just killing you. They're mocking you while they're killing you. There's no sensitivity. There's no tenderness for Jesus there. In fact, once he gets up on the cross, does it get any better? What are the thieves doing? They're scorning him and mocking him as well. People are shouting to him, Jesus, if you're God, save yourself. And so they're mocking and scorning the king of glory in this bruised and beaten and destroyed position as he's on the cross and bearing the weight of our sins upon him. The shame that the king of glory is receiving on the cross is just unthinkable. This shame that he endured, the Bible says, Jesus despised. Now, we think of the word despise. A lot of times, you and I just use it as the word to hate. Uh, you despise something. I despise paying taxes. Uh, that's how we think of it. But this word despise actually doesn't mean so much to hate something as much as it means to think little of, to think nothing of, and to neglect it. Now, in relation to a human, we would call that hate. To think nothing of, to think little of, and to neglect it. But what is it that Jesus is despising here? The shame. The emotional suffering that he is receiving right here. Jesus thought little of and neglected. He shrugged it off. He thought little of that emotional, physical and emotional suffering that he endured for you and I. In fact, so, uh, so far from his mind was retribution and condemnation that he prayed for the very people who were abusing him. And what did he pray? Father, forgive them. They, they have no idea what they're doing. Can we endure like that? 
where we can shrug off or think little of the shame and the disgrace that is being cast upon us. Remember, the Bible says that Jesus was numbered amongst the transgressors. It means that he was identified as a criminal. Would you like that, knowing you're not a criminal, to be identified like that? You walk into the post office. Do we do that anymore? Anybody still buy stamps? Uh, you walk into the post office, you look on the wall, it used to be all these like wanted posters and things of all these like horrible people, you know, rapists and murderers and like terrorists. And, and you look on the wall and you see your name there and somebody's accused you of being a murderer. Would you be okay with that? I mean, because it's not you. This is what they did to Jesus. They are insulting him. They are numbering him and identifying him as a transgressor when he was the furthest thing from it. And yet, all of the shame that he endured, the Bible says that Jesus despised. He, he shrugged it off. He neglected it. He thought little of it. All that matters here is me accomplishing the purposes of God here. And so we as a Christian, Jesus, remember, he says he calls us to walk in his steps, right? That means that we do the same thing with the, the shame that we receive. When people speak evil of you, when they lie about you, and they slander you, how do you respond? Can I tell you? If you respond with offense and anger and retaliation. We didn't learn that from Jesus. When we are easily angered, easily offended, easily bothered, it's not a symptom of the humility of Christ. It's a, it's a, it's a symbol of the pride of somebody else. Who was the one who committed the original sin? It wasn't Adam and Eve. It was Satan. Isaiah 14, Ezekiel 28 describes the pride of Satan. I will be like the most high. He thought so highly of himself, and that was the original sin. God does not look lightly upon our pride. And one of the great pride tests of our life is, how do you do when you endure up under emotional and physical suffering? Do you want to retaliate? Do you want to get back? Do you want to get angry? Are you offended? How dare they say something about me? That's of our father, the devil. Our true heavenly father, Jesus Christ, shrugged it off. He despised the shame. He thought little of it. He was able to dismiss it because all that really mattered was accomplishing the purposes that God put him here on earth to do. It says in 1 Peter 2.23, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. How does Jesus do that? Not revile in return, not to threaten, not to get angry, not to be offended. It says he entrusted, continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. When you can keep your mind and eyes focused on Jesus and know that Jesus is gonna take care of all this, if there is retribution that needs to be done, God will do it. I don't need to control my life. I don't need to get revenge. I don't have to worry about people slandering and lying about me. God will take care of this. Like Jesus, we have been called to suffer as he did and not to revile, not to get angry, but to shrug off that offense, shrug off that shame, and just entrust ourselves to the one who judges rightly. That's how we make it through the wall of suffering and shame. Bible says that he did this, Hebrews 12 too, he did this for the joy that was set before him. What was that joy? It says later that he would be seated at the right hand of God. How did Jesus make it through this earthly suffering here on earth? It's because he wasn't just looking and focusing on all the bad things happening to him. He was looking at the purpose he was sent here to do and he was looking even beyond that to the glory that was awaiting him. The glory that we read about in Philippians 2.9. For this reason also God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow. Of those who are in heaven and earth or under the earth, and every tongue will confess Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. 
How did Jesus endure immediate present shame and suffering? He didn't focus on the immediate present shame and suffering. He shrugged that off. Instead, he focused his eyes on the goal and why he was there. And then he was looking forward to a future day when God the Father, we're going to make all things right. How do we make it through the wall of suffering when we don't want to keep suffering for our Christian life? I'm, 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 why do I bother still coming to church? Why do I bother still giving when I could barely afford to make my bills? When do I, why do I bother continuing to serve? You feel like Elijah. Nobody else around me is serving like I do. How do we make it through that wall and persist and remain running strong for Jesus? We put our eyes on him, the one who entrusted himself to the one who judges rightly. And we look forward to the fact that there is a joy, there is a glory that awaits us as well. There is a day when God will reward our efforts. So God doesn't call us to make it through life chasing happiness. We all know happiness is based on happenings. You're happy when things happen to you that are good, right? You get happy when the light that you have to wait at turns green just as you get there, and all of a sudden you're happy. You're happy when the parking lot spot opens up for you. You're happy that we have some days off this week and you're gonna enjoy a Thanksgiving dinner with your family. That makes us happy. You're happy because you're, you're going to a concert or you're going to an activity or you're gonna buy stuff for Christmas. Happy, these are happenings. And there's nothing wrong with those things. But you can't chase that as the purpose of your life. You can't lean on happiness to make it through the suffering of life. What will get us through suffering? Joy. To be contrasted with happiness. Happiness is when my happenings are going well for me. It gratifies my flesh in some way. I'm happy. Joy is when you look at the joy that has been set before you. Joy is knowing that my eternal needs are met in Christ and that I have a future like Christ where God will give me a glorified body and where God will reward me according to my efforts here on earth. So I'm not, I'm not thankful this Thanksgiving because everything in my life is going the way I want it to that I've successfully controlled everyone and everything around me so that my life is pleasing and continually gratifying to my flesh, giving me what I desire. Instead, what helps me bear up under this burden, hupomone, remember to bear up under this burden, continue to running for God, how I do that is for joy, that my eternal needs are met, and that there's something far better awaiting us beyond this life. Enjoy the things God gives you, but don't live for them. Hebrews 12, 2 says that the reason he's sharing this with us uh, is so that we might make it through the wall ourselves. Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The Bible says that if we're suffering because of the gospel, if we're hurting, if we're sad and people have turned their back on us, people think we're hateful people because of the biblical moral positions that God gives us and the world doesn't like you just like they didn't like Jesus. He wants to remind us when they hate you, remember they hated me first. They hate you on account of me. They hate you because of what I stand for. And just look to me. I've run this race already. I laid out the course. I ran that race and I'm calling you to run that race that I did. Just look at me and look what I did. Follow me. In fact, Hebrews 12, 3 says, consider him. How you receive joy and how you make it through that wall of the Christian life is by considering him. It's a word that means to think about him over and over and over again. If you think about your physical suffering, what's that gonna do to your emotional nature? If you just think about what you're going through and what you don't have and how things aren't going your way, are you gonna be a happy person? <laughs> you're gonna be bitter, you're gonna be angry, you're gonna be nasty with people and short-tempered and always offended. 
But if our focus is on Jesus, we're considering him. Where our, our focus is on him and our, our thoughts are on him and we're reading God's word and we're praying to him and then we just rest knowing that God is sovereign and I don't have to be, that person is experiencing that fruit of the spirit, peace. You'll see that person being thankful. Still, Christians can get discouraged in life that we don't have everything that we want and we have to remind ourselves of what is true. The Bible reminds us that the one who laid out the course ran it for us and provided himself as an example. In Hebrews 4.15, earlier in this book, he said this, for we do not have a high priest, that's Jesus, who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. He knows what we've gone through. He knows what it feels like to have the, the temptation of the flesh. He knows what it feels like to be, to be hated and scorned and mocked and lied about. He's been there. He says, but in every way has been tempted as we are and yet without sin. Remember, Jesus was the first, the first who experienced this. Acts 3.15 talks about how he was the first from the dead. He's the first. He's the first to run this race. He's the first to finish it. He's the first to be glorified. And so we consider Jesus that we not grow weary or faint-hearted. These are the two responses when we're focusing on the world and not on Jesus. We become weary or faint-hearted. Okay, weary. Weary is just a word that is actually translated sick in James 3.15. It means you're so stressed, you're so brokenhearted, you're so dejected and just downtrodden that it literally has physical toll on your body. Can that happen? Proverbs 17 talks about how a broken spirit does what to the bones? It dries it up. That if you're living in continual, habitual bitterness, frustration, anxiety, fear, and anger, God didn't intend you to live that way. In fact, that's gonna have a negative effect on your life and even your physical health. And so focusing on Jesus keeps us from being weary and stressed. Because, why? Because we know that he's in control. It's okay. My job is to follow Jesus and to walk obediently by faith. Let God take care of the details. Let God decide how your story ends. Don't try to control everything about your life. Put the blinders on, focus on Jesus, and let him take care of the stuff in your periphery. He also says that we may not become faint-hearted. This means exhausted to the point of despondent. When that runner in the marathon hits that wall, he could become faint-hearted, want to quit. I can't move on. I can't go any further. You feel what my legs feel like. I have no energy. My body is eating itself to finish this race. I should just stop. What was I thinking? I don't need a medal for my wall. I'm done. And, and so your brain starts playing games against you, trying to counsel you against this goal of yours. And the Christian life can be that same way where our brain begins to counsel us. You don't need to stay faithful. Why go to church? You know, once upon a time back in 1972, somebody hurt your feelings at church. You shouldn't go anymore. Why did you bother reading your Bible? You read your Bible for the first time in weeks, and on that day, you got sick. What good is that? You prayed and prayed and prayed for this, this young child to be healed, and God allowed him to die. Your prayers don't mean anything. Why bother praying? And that means that we've, we've grown exhausted and weary. The Christian life and what God asks us to do, God isn't just cause and effect, immediate reward. Sometimes God makes us to walk obediently in faith to him, and we don't ever get to see the outcome of that step of faith. We wanna grow weary, we wanna grow faint-hearted. And so the Bible just says, how do we get out of that? Consider him, focus on what Jesus did, focus on how he got through this life, how he made it through the wall, and then focus on where Jesus is today because that's the very same place that he's inviting us to. 
You know, when a person gets cancer, who do they want to talk to? Somebody who has been there, who has done that, who has made it through the chemo treatments and the radiation treatments, and they've come out on the other side and they're okay. That's what Jesus is for us. He is somebody who laid out the course, he ran the race, he's finished, he's seated at the right hand of God. The Bible is encouraging us to consider him, to counsel with him, to look at his example, to pray to him, to lean on his strength to make it through. You know, often in the Christian life, God will allow us to go through walls too, won't he? Are you exempt from that? Just because you're walking with God, are you exempt from trial? I'm gonna tell you some of the hardest trials ever had were in ministry. I could tell you at every ministry, several places where I hit a wall, where my flesh is counseling me, you know, Bauer, you could be making a lot more money doing something else. You could have a lot less headache if you just walked away from the ministry and did something different. Your life would be much more peaceful and easy. People would actually like you. You know, just do something else. Even most recently, when we had to come off the field, it was the hardest time of my life. I had almost died of a gangrenous infection, kept me in the hospital three and a half weeks by myself in the middle of, at the very beginning of COVID when we all thought the world was coming to an apocalyptic end where we're all gonna be raiding grocery stores and eating each other. <clears throat> I was in the hospital dying. God rose me up from that bed, I honestly believe, by his power and brought me home. But when I came home, guess what? Uh, we come home, we, uh, we're empty nesting. We, we lost our last child. That's a hard time to go through. At that very same time, I was, I was experiencing something from some coworkers of mine who had betrayed me and said bad things about me to people higher up above me. Ultimately, we discovered that uh, even though we were preparing to go back to work with the Chinese, we weren't going to be allowed to. We were gonna have to switch people groups altogether and move and start over again, and we wouldn't be allowed to work with the people that we felt God had led us to work with. And at that point, my wife and I, we were just under such anxiety and stress I, was so, I felt so betrayed and so beaten up and so sad and so disillusioned to that point. Have you ever been so stressed that you just can't even sleep? I was up all night long at the, at, at, because of things that had been said about me. And it just broke my heart. And it's at times like that that we draw in near to God and we weep before the Lord and we pray to him. And, he, and during those times, he gives us scriptures, sometimes even songs and such that will just get us through this these periods of time, and, and during that particular time, a song that was just uh, instrumental to me, it's a, it's a song that actually doesn't even have a name, I guess, it's called Untitled Hymn. And the words go like this, it said, weak and wounded sinner, lost and left to die, oh, raise your head, for love is passing by. Come to Jesus and live. Now your burden's lifted and carried far away, and the precious blood has washed away the stain. So sing to Jesus and live. He might as well have said, consider him who endured such hostility that you not grow weary or faint-hearted. And so I'd just like to encourage you today, whatever pain you're experiencing, Jesus has been there. If you're walking into Thanksgiving this, this year and you are embittered toward God, embittered toward your family or other things, friends, can I just call upon you like Hebrews 12, consider him who endured such hostility. Let the, let the frustration go. If you're full of anxiety and fear this Thanksgiving, because you're looking at everything in your life, thinking you need to be aware of everything, know everything, control everything in your life, and it's stressing you out because that is only meant for the, the mind of a sovereign, omnipotent God, but you're trying to do that yourself, and so you're living in fear and anxiety because of that, can I just ask you, come to Jesus. 
Lay your anxiety down before him. Let him control the outcome of your future. Come to Jesus and live. Father, we just pray today, thankful that you have given us a pattern in Jesus Christ that we might live, that we might live and walk the path, run the race that Jesus has called for us to walk and to live. But yet you don't, you don't ask us to do this without having first given us an example to follow, that you gave us Jesus, who is the Arche, the first, the author and finisher of our faith, who came and lived the life that we couldn't live, He lived it perfectly. He left the footprints in the snow that we could follow behind him in his steps. Father, help us not to grow weary or faint-hearted, wanting to quit, to walk away from you, that when a scary thing happens in our life, that we don't bolt from you. We don't bolt from church. We don't bolt from the Bible or prayer or giving or serving or loving other people. God, help us to think little of the shame that is heaped upon us. Help us to be unoffendable people. And God, help us just to keep our eyes on the goal, keep our eyes on the prize, to allow you to focus our attention of what lay ahead of us for the joy that is set before us after running this race. We ask this in Christ's name, amen. Friends, I'd just like to encourage you. We're about to take the Lord's Supper. We'd just like to give you a moment just to uh, contemplate and respond to the message that's been preached today from Hebrews 12, two and three. I know we're not preaching to a crowd of people whose life is perfect and going well for you. There's a lot of hurting and suffering people right now. Some of you have lost loved ones recently. Some of you may have lost a job. Some of you maybe have received a diagnosis you haven't even told people about yet. Can I just encourage you, come to Jesus. Or maybe you find yourself here today and you don't even know, you don't even know this Jesus. You can't look to the joy that was set before him because you don't know what's set before you. If you were to die today, you don't know what would happen. Can I just encourage you as we listen to the words of the song that I just spoke of, I want to give you a chance to respond. We're going to pray together as a, as a church family and just ask God, what is my personal response? If you need to know the Jesus that came and died for your sins, who rose again proving he had the power of life and who invites you into that life by placing your faith in him, that he will, he will forgive you of your sins and grant you eternal life, that Jesus, we're going to give you a chance to respond to that. And if you need someone to pray for you today, We're going to invite you as we're just praying. Feel free to come forward if you'd like or talk to us after the service. Just don't leave here without taking care of whatever spiritual business God has for you today. Let's pray together. From all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments.